Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us today for this episode of Learning, Lifting, Leading, Social Equity for and by Black and Brown Girls and Women. My name is Jen Grimmett, and with us today is Whitney Tucker, Director of Research at NC Child, speaking on the topic of public health and social policy with a specific focus on suicide prevention. So welcome, Whitney. Hi, thank you for having me. (laughs) Absolutely. Glad, glad, glad to have you. Um, you know, to maybe help our audience get a better sense of who you are and what brings you with us today to speak on this topic, could you share a little bit about you, your background, and the work that you do? Sure. So, um, just to give a really holistic view of me as a person, um, I am a black woman. I am pretty young. I'm under 30. I've grown up in the South all of my life. I'm from South Carolina originally. Went to school in Tennessee and made my way to North Carolina eventually. And my entire professional career um, has been focused on public policy impacting children and their families. So my work right now at NC Child really takes public policy proposals or um, policies that have already been enacted and analyzes the impact that they're going to have on children and um, what we can do to help really strengthen families to give kids their best shot at success in life. And that's all children, um, with a particular focus on black and brown children who are so often left behind. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. We will dive right in. The topic of suicide prevention is so broad. And I know that, you know, you have shared with me that the suicide prevention aspect isn't necessarily the primary focus of your work. But I'm wondering if you could give a little context for what you are finding as emerging and current trends around that in the work that you do. Sure. So, um, yeah, you're right. Suicide prevention isn't the primary focus of my work, but it's more and more become an issue that um, that I'm reading about, that I'm writing about, because youth suicide is actually on the rise in North Carolina and suicide in general is on the rise nationwide. So um, in 2016, for ages 10 and up, which are the ages in the U.S. that we, um, we generally collect suicide data for um, children younger than 10, um, it's not considered suicide um, by most professional sources because their brains are just so um, underdeveloped and that there's this idea that um, the children under 10 can't really conceptualize the impact mm-hmm. of dying by suicide. But um, we could talk about that a little bit later. <laughs> um, <laughs> But for ages 10 and up, suicide was the number 10 cause of death in the U.S. And men account for about three quarters of that. But um, suicide is actually one of the top three or one of three in the top 10 causes of death in the U.S. that actually has a rising rate. Um, The other two are Alzheimer's and um, drug overdose. So we're seeing this become an incredibly um, impactful thing in so many people's lives, not only for, um, for folks who are who are struggling with this and who are considering dying by suicide, but also for their family members, because this is a relatively common occurrence at this point. Um, In North Carolina, about two times as many people die by suicide annually than by homicide. Hmm. And it's something that there still is such a strong stigma attached to that I think most people just don't know that. Right now in North Carolina, like these are 2017 figures, um, the... Number two cause of death among children ages 10 to 17 is suicide. Wow. Yeah, it's it's incredible. And it's interesting to me that we haven't heard more. You know, I mean, I know in my own personal life, this isn't a thing that comes up. You know, people aren't really talking about this. You'll see that there have been a few news articles here and there, but most of them are focused um, nationally. But even in North Carolina, we're seeing incredibly high rates of suicide, particularly among youth, that I think um, folks just aren't really prepared to deal with right now. What are you seeing as causal effects to, you know, that's mobilizing that increase? Well, I think that the, the things that impact suicidal ideation have been studied really far and wide, and I don't think that there are new reasons that folks are dying by suicide in North Carolina. So it's um, so things that put you at risk of suicidal ideation, um, things like depression, uh, family history, 
significant stress, significant loss, childhood trauma, um, issues with your relationships, um, self-injury, those things are not changing per se. I do think that, um, that some of it may be related to generational differences in how we consume information. I think the kids now are exposed to a lot more information and also that a lot of things um, that they're they're knowledgeable about a lot of issues that you know kids in the past might not have been able to access the information on. I think that they, the internet has done some of that, but also that um, you know children deal with a lot of the same stressors that adults do, and I think that more and more we're having to to recognize that we haven't done enough over the years to impact those adult level stressors, and that that is eventually trickling down to our kids. So the things that would cause significant stress, um, factors like living in poverty, factors like um, being discriminated against, either for your race or for your um, sexual orientation, those sort of things are, are happening and they're becoming more and more blatant in recent years. There's been a lot of research on hate crimes increasing as well. And I think that all of that has an impact on the mental state of our children and on their parents. And what we're seeing now in the suicide trends is really just that taking off. So do you think, and this is a totally subjective prompt, <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, do you think that the in- elevated access and ease of access to media and other types of information pathways are contributing to younger kids acting on their ideation? Well, completely subjectively. (laughs) Right. Um, I do think that that is contributing some, but I think that more of it is probably just that access to the internet and sharing information is making us more aware of when those things happen. So I think that, um, that this problem has always existed, but now kids can hear more about other children who have gone through with some of their suicide attempts, um, other children who have died by suicide as a result of bullying that to them might sound similar to the type of bullying that they're experiencing or you know, that sort of thing mm-hmm. can um, impact a child's decision making. And I think that it's important to keep in mind that especially when we're talking about kids, their brains just aren't fully formed yet. Mm-hmm. Right. So they're already having these higher levels of impulsivity than adults. And I think that it doesn't take as much um, as much of a push you know, from the Internet or from any other source that can kind of say, okay, well, this person is having the same problem and they got out, you know, that that is what it might sound like to a child who is struggling with some of these issues and not able to access, you know, the help that they need. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, speaking of access, that is also, I would say, probably one of the bigger issues. Um, A lot of time people are having this, these problems that I've mentioned before, depression, childhood trauma, significant loss, those sort of things, and they don't have access to high-quality behavioral health care, they can help them to work through some of that. And on their own, you know, people, people can't handle a lot of their stressors. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's how humans are really meant to, to live. And I think that when people feel isolated, that suicidal ideation really just flourishes. So, you know, going off of that a little bit, there was, I don't want to say an article, I think it was posted on mm-hmm. the World Health Organization's website, that groups who experience discrimination are at a higher risk for attempted or completed suicide. What do you think is the impact on women and girls of color in response to that narrative? Well, I think that it really plays into the superwoman complex that I don't know if you're, I mean, are you familiar with this term? People Mm -hmm. refer to it sometimes, um, this concept, particularly among black women, that there is an expectation that we be stronger, that we rise above all of the things that happen to us all of the time. And there's been a lot of research that's been done that's saying that the more we try to internalize the stress that, that impacts us, you know, particularly um, stressors based on our gender, particularly stressors based on our race, that 
it's resulting in negative health outcomes. And so I think we see that in birth outcomes, particularly when we're talking about physical health. Um, so, you know, low birth weight babies, uh, preterm births, that sort of thing. But we also, I think it stands to reason, would see some of that in mental health outcomes. And so groups that are experiencing discrimination have all of these physical health indicators that people have been looking at that I think less has been done when it comes to behavioral health and that suicidal ideation and rising suicide rates are, are one of the ways that that discrimination just really manifests. I think that it takes a lot out of somebody to experience discrimination that other people say they can't see all the time, right? Mm -hmm. And that kind of stress um, can really lead people down a very dark path. So, you know, you you mentioned the the superhero um, stereotype. Uh -huh. um, one of the things that I would love to hear more about is because this has come up. I think every single conversation I've had with folks that, mm -hmm. you know, how the embodiment of being a strong black woman can manifest in various ways, some positive, some not. But, you know, how are you seeing that as it manifests in relationship to wellness and prevention work? Sure. So um, I will say for one thing, I'm not seeing enough resources that are specifically geared to people of color, right? So people of color in general, um, black people in specific, and black women in particular, right? I don't think that they're, I mean, I guess the way to put it is that people buy into this concept, right? This, this superwoman idea um, is still very pervasive in our culture and I think has historical roots that are um, really pernicious. But people buy into the concept so much that there aren't specialized courses um, being trained and amassed on a large scale that are focused specifically at black and brown women. And that is leaving us more vulnerable to the effects of all of those risk factors that I mentioned earlier. And also um, in North Carolina in particular, more black and brown women live in impoverished environments live in situations that are known to be high stress and particularly known to cause toxic stress, which can chemically alter your brain function and change the way that you're able to deal with stressors. Right. And so, um, I don't think that we're making enough of a connection between the environments that black and brown women in North Carolina increasingly live in and the resources that are made available to those same women. Mm-hmm. You are more likely to live in poverty if you're black in North Carolina than, um, than white people, but you are also less likely to um, have regular access to care, right? And those things together are going to put you at a higher risk of um, suicidal ideation, but also not being able to receive the treatment that you need and the care that you need from a licensed professional who can help you to work through that. Mm -hmm. Given some of the stigmas and stereotypes that you have touched on and how they're attached to suicide and suicidal ideation, what place does cultural competency education have as a method for preventing suicides of black and brown girls? I think that it has a pretty big one. I would say that um, suicide prevention in terms of policy response could be split up into three main camps. Um, one would be limiting access to lethal means. We can talk about that if you want. Um, one would be funding mental health services, but then the last would be training and increasing access to providers who are equipped to handle those issues, mm -hmm. right? And so when we're talking about black and brown girls, I think that cultural competency training is so important because the same questions that you might ask to a, um, a white teenage boy, um, questions like, um, do you have a plan to hurt yourself? Will you talk to someone who can help, right? Those are, those are pretty basic questions that folks are taught to, um, to ask someone who may have suicidal ideation, but those questions may not work for for a lot of black women in particular, if you are taught to not ask for help mm -hmm. when you might need help, or um, if you are taught to not talk with someone 
who can help, right? So you might say, do you have a plan to hurt yourself? Well, no, like I've thought about it, but I don't have a plan, right? But will you talk with someone who can help? A lot of the time, I think a lot of black women would say, who could help? You know, this is a thing that I feel, this is not something that I can be helped. And I think that cultural competency training can help folks to understand that that is, that that's just not true, right? That the, that someone can help you to shape the way that you feel about things. And that that's just something that's not um, traditionally been valued in black culture in particular. And um, from what I've read in Hispanic cultures as well. And I think that it's something that... Um, that cultural competency training can help us to, to kind of change the narrative on. And we need to, to make it cool again to talk to someone when you feel like you can't handle the things that are going on. Mm-hmm. One of the, um, I don't want to say trends, one of the themes that mm-hmm. has just been a continuous thread through my conversations has been entering into supporting black and brown girls and women through a trauma-informed lens. Mm -hmm. And what I'm wondering is, you know, looking at, and again, like this was a whole other podcast, but looking at historical Mm -hmm. historical traumas, right? And, Mm -hmm. you know, linking that to the cultural competency education aspect. Like, Mm -hmm. how can those be effectively partnered to better support young black and brown girls in school. In general, the teachers that they are seeing are often, they don't look like them. And right. and so very much what you were saying about that not all, like the questions don't apply to everyone. Right. So I think that trauma-informed care is it's one of those things that is focused specifically at improving outcomes for um, a particular group. So in this case, children who have experienced significant trauma early on in life, but it has these positive effects for every child, right? Um, I think trauma-informed care is particularly important when we're talking about black and brown girls because they are more likely to experience adverse childhood experiences, which are um, those factors that I was talking about earlier that later on in life have been found to impact um, your health as an adult. So um, experiences like having a parent who is incarcerated, which we know happens at a much higher rate for, um, for black and brown children than it does for white children. Things like growing up at a household um, with domestic violence, growing up in a household with food insecurity, um, those experiences create sort of, um, well, the toxic stress I'm talking about, it's kind of like a persistent stress that never goes away, right? Like it is a, it's, I try to think of a way to explain toxic stress to folks who may never have felt anything like that. Um, but I grew up in a place that was very poor, but, um, you know, everybody was poor, so it was different. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't really aware of that, but um, we moved when I was younger to a place that was poor, but everybody was poor, but also everybody was white, hmm. right? And so I constantly felt different all the time, just constantly thinking about it. And so, like, that is not, at this point, considered an ACE by most major sources. Some folks have, so ACE, adverse childhood experience, um, some folks have referred to racial discrimination as a type of childhood trauma, right? But that constant feeling that that what you do matters more, right? Like that, that gave me a stress all the time. Like everyone was watching me, right? Mm-hmm. And that stress, that kind of stress of always having to think about that sort of thing as a child, that has been shown to lead to high blood pressure. That has been shown to lead to higher rates of cancer, diabetes, stroke, right? And we have to have, even when we can't have teachers who look like children um, in the same classroom, we need to have teachers who are looking for things like that to be going on in a household, in a school, and in a classroom, right? So um, one of the, the signs of, um, of suicidal ideation is a drop in school performance, right? But if we don't train our teachers 
to expect the same outcomes from children of color that they expect from white children, right? That that drop in school performance could just feed into someone's own internalized biases about what black and brown kids are able to achieve, Mm -hmm. right? If we have um, a a sign or something like um, depression or mental illness, but you don't recognize depression in a little black girl the way that you would recognize depression in a white one, right? That, that you're never going to be able to catch those signs and symptoms until it's too late, right? Changes in personality are important. Depression is important, sleep disturbances, all of that. But um, with black and brown kids, I think we're kind of fighting this uphill battle against all of these internalized racial biases that um, providers, I mean, that everyone already has about who those kids are and what they're capable of achieving, what their families are like, what their communities are like. And so when they see some of these signs and symptoms, instead of it, you know, being recognized for what it is without trauma informed training, they're going to just believe that that is the way those kids behave. That is the way those kids live. Right. And not that this is something that I need to be taking note of and talking to this child about talking to this parent about and making sure that we're taking seriously. So, so trauma-informed care can help with that. You know? Yeah. And, I'm, you know, one of the things that you mentioned is, you know, a common denominator of poverty and how that can impact everything. Impacts nutrition, which impacts learning, it, which impacts behavior. Um, right. You know, how would you describe the relationship between low-income communities and then you add on, you know, underfunded schools and how that can lead or perpetuate a the relationship with suicidal ideation of women and girls of color? Sure. So to put it simply, I'd say that poverty promotes conditions that create stress that then leads to suicidal ideation. So poverty promotes conditions like depression. It promotes um, anxiety. It promotes um, family instability. It promotes food insecurity. And all of that can lead to feelings of hopelessness and despair. And what we see when people feel hopeless, when people feel like No one cares about them when people um, are constantly day in and day out seeing folks who are struggling and working and working and never getting anywhere, that that leads to a feeling that your actions don't matter. Mm -hmm. Right. And then when people feel that way, they are more likely to die by suicide. They are more likely to come up with a plan to die by suicide. They are more likely to um, to fantasize this idea of dying by suicide is a way to get out of these conditions when we can change the conditions, right? And that more work really needs to be done to create space for all children, but specifically for black children in North Carolina in particular to live in conditions that do not make them feel hopeless, right? Black and brown girls are growing up in environments where their actions, no matter how hard they are trying, are not leading them, um, often enough to the outcomes that they want for their lives. And we need to talk about that because if we don't, we're going to keep seeing black and brown girls who are given up. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I I don't mean to say that as, um, as if dying by suicide is giving up. I wouldn't, I don't want it to, I don't want to frame it as if, as if life is some sort of race And that is a way to jump off the track, Mm -hmm. right? I think that that is how people end up seeing it when we let these conditions flourish where people are are kind of languishing in their communities. When they have low-income communities, when they have underfunded schools, when we don't provide access to health care and services that can help folks to, to get either um, therapy or um, or the medicines they might need to deal with behavioral health issues, that, that they're going to feel like there's no point, right? And I want us to, to have conditions for every child and every black and brown child in particular to know that if something is going on in that child's life, it is not 
something that we have caused with policy and practice choices. I, I want us to be able to, as a society, ensure that all children are starting off on a foot where if that child um, gives them to suicidal ideation, if that child dies by suicide, we don't ask, is it because, you know, this child has lived in a family that has been impoverished for five generations, right? Is it because this child is living in a house that doesn't have enough food? Is it because this child is trying to work a job after school to make sure that his family can keep on the lights, right? Because we already know that that creates stress that is leading us to the outcomes we don't want to see for our kids. I think that there's more we can do on the policy level to make it so that um, when kids have these thoughts and feelings, that it is more related to their interpersonal relationships than their circumstances. And right now, I don't think that's the case. So what kind of, I would, what kind of social policies could better the outcome? Sure. So, um, so going back to those, those three kind of main buckets I mentioned earlier, I would say, um, first off, limiting access to lethal means. Um, there's a lot of research around that, right? That if you create um, policies that incentivize folks to safely store guns, if you create policies that um, decrease, that lead to decreases in, um, in neighborhood violence, in general, that it decreases the access to lethal means and that that has a big impact on suicide rates in general, mm-hmm. right? So that's one bucket of work, um, different policies that can limit access to lethal means. Um, another is funding for mental health services, which is where um, neighborhood and community poverty, I think, comes in a lot more. So North Carolina hasn't expanded Medicaid, which for really low-income communities limits access to behavioral health services based essentially on what you can afford, right? And also um, add on to that a stigma about, say, going to the therapist anyway, right? And we're going to see fewer black and brown children getting that, um, that access, and in particular black and brown girls, right? And so if we um, increase funding for mental health services, if we increase access to healthcare services in general by doing things like expanding Medicaid in the state, that has a ripple effect that leads to better outcomes. Um, Earlier this year, I did a report that was focused on the number of children who've been going into foster care as a result of parental substance use disorders, right? That's on the rise in the state. Um, Obviously, the opioid crisis is having a big impact everywhere, but I think most people don't think about the impact that it has on children and the foster care system, right, Mm -hmm. in the long run. But in writing for that report, what I found was that in states that expanded Medicaid, the majority of people who um, who needed substance abuse treatment or more people who needed substance abuse treatment services were able to access it, and their substance use um, their substance use treatment rates increased dramatically. Right? So we saw a crazy amount more. I can't even remember what the exact percentage is right this second. Um, I'll have to, to give back to you, but um, <laughs> we saw just an increase, a crazy increase in states that um, that expanded Medicaid and the number of people who were looking for and able to access treatment, particularly for substance use disorders. And that alone would have such a phenomenal impact on our children in the state and the stressors that parents face that might lead them to suicidal ideation. And then also the, you know, the consequence stressors that children might face if a parent does die by suicide or if a parent just constantly wants to, right? And so um, increasing people's access to high-quality care that they can afford um, really could have a tremendous impact on suicide rates in our state, I think. And then also um, in that third bucket, talking more about sort of gatekeeper training. So um, it's sort of an industry term that refers to, to folks like like people who work in schools, um, healthcare providers, folks who, who interact with community members to deliver whatever type of service that they might um, need, that the more we can train those folks on what they need to be looking for when it comes to, um, to potential suicidal ideation and also cultural competence, the more we can fund programs to do that, in North Carolina, I mean, there's one program called, like, the CALM program. It's an acronym, C-A, 
LM. But um, the more we fund programs like Calm, which is um, really just trying to help people to to counsel other folks on their access to lethal means, that when we invest in those sort of things for gatekeepers, we see lower suicide rates, right? And by we, I mean the U.S., right? So different states that have done this. In North Carolina, I think we can do more to really support programs that are trying to go into places that we don't traditionally want to go into to talk to people about suicidal ideation. So I use the example of Calm and the examples of schools and providers, but I think we could also do more with, you know, people who um, who work in regular community institutions, um, places like churches, places like um, corner stores. You know, if we can have sort of pop-up and, and mobile events and that sort of thing to help folks, especially people who are living in really desperate conditions, to be able to access more of the care that they need to talk about how they feel and how their conditions are making them feel and what they can do about it, I think the better off we'll be and the lower suicide rates we'll see. But so far, that hasn't really been a priority in terms of funding at the policy level. And um, I think we're seeing the effects of that. Yeah. I'm just... I'm, just, I'm sorry. I mean, no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm just, um, you know, I'm just sitting with in processing through all of the information that you've shared because it's so important. And I, one of the things that has struck me through these conversations is in some way, shape, or form, all of that has come up, whether we're talking about suicide prevention, public policy, whether we're talking about police brutality or historical trauma, you know, it's, mm-hmm. and so it. It really stops me in my tracks to do some reflection on, so we know all of this, so why, what, what is preventing it from happening if, if it's a common narrative across different environments, you know? Hmm. Yeah, I, I don't I know. I think that's a deeper social question. Right? Yeah, I mean, I mean it, it nobody. Says a lot about our priorities as a society and as a state. I mean, no one really wants me to go down a an introspective rabbit hole right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I think that you know, it's all the, the positive in that is that there are structures and policies and approaches in place that could change the narrative, right? Right. And so it's right. it's finding folks with the capabilities to mobilize those at those pieces. Right. Um, and again, that's a whole another podcast. But <laughs> I will say that if folks do find some like-minded people who want to work on suicide prevention in particular, and are not sure where to start, mm-hmm. that North Carolina has created a suicide prevention plan, a state suicide prevention plan. Operationalizing that plan is really where folks can can do a lot of good if they're particularly interested in this. So the plan breaks out um, different strategies by you know all kinds of different sectors of society, and so I think that you know if it's just overwhelming, sort of the the opportunities out there or where folks should start, that that's a good place to get started and to kind of focus any work that you want to do because. There's just a lot to be done, right? I mean, but all of it has been considered. There have been people who have been talking and thinking and writing about this for a long time, and there are still people in the state who want to do something about this. It's just about building up the support to make it a a political priority. Mm -hmm. And money. Yeah. And I mean, (laughs) political priorities get funded, right? So, I mean, if this is an issue that's important to you and your community, you being yourself, but also any listener, you know, that, that this is something that you need to, to build up some local support for and, and contact your representatives and create local initiatives because that's the way that this gets seen, especially when we're talking about black girls, especially when we're talking about um, Hispanic girls in particular, um, and Native girls, that a lot of the times these stories are overlooked, right? And the way that they're going to see us is if we get in front of somebody and tell them, like, we are here and this is a problem that we are having and we want to fix it. 
and we won't wait. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to kind of move our conversation into the NCAP portion, you know, mm-hmm. one of the things I would love for you to share with our listeners is a little about your research on two-generation strategies for improving child well-being. Sure. So, um, let's start with just the overarching statement that I think is pretty intuitive for most people, but I do still find a little bit of pushback about this, um, depending on where you say it. Okay. Children's well-being largely depends on the well-being of their families and communities. So we cannot create policies that work for children if we do not create policies that work for families. I, I very much believe that, and it seems like a very obvious statement to a lot of people, but um, there are still folks who really have bought into the concept of like bringing yourself up by your bootstraps and um, personal responsibility over everything, et cetera, et cetera. But especially when we're talking about children, which I usually am, it's bigger than just what they are able to do on their own, right? Like they are not really responsible for their circumstances for the most part. And also what happens to us as children shapes and influences who we become as adults. And I don't think that we talk about that enough. And when we talk about two generation strategies, it's, it's talking about strategies that are impacting and bettering not only the well-being or the access to a particular service or um, the utilization of some particular program for children, but also bettering those impacts on their families or I should say their caregiver, right? So not even necessarily blood relatives, but the people who have an impact on the life of a child, mm-hmm. right? Because a child doesn't necessarily need a, a loving parent. They do need a loving adult in their life. And that's research, right? Like you need to have one adult. I can't remember who, um, who said this. There's a quote that says like, um, every child needs at least one adult who is irrationally crazy about him or her. <laughs> I like that. And I love that. Uh-huh. I love that because that's the, that's the thing, right? Everybody cannot, everybody unfortunately can't have that person be a blood relative or a parent even, but, but what we do for children as adults becomes what those children do for children as adults. Right. And so when we talk about two generation strategies, um, a lot of them are anti-poverty. So it's policies that are simultaneously trying to help parents and children. So things like um, child care centers within adult education centers. Right. So parent is going in to try and get their GED. But a lot of the time people have problems staying in those programs because of the um, the hours. Right. They need to fit around their work hours and we flex the programs to make them late at night, right? But if you have children, you still need to watch the children, right? And mm-hmm. so a lot of the times that's still a burden for people. And so programs, um, I know some community colleges have already done this, but programs that provide child care or child care assistance um, when you enroll in the program and need that, those are two-generation strategies. That's going to help that parent to get a degree, but it is also helping the child by giving them access to quality childcare when they might otherwise be sitting at home, you know, with who knows who, right? Someone mm-hmm. who is probably not trained or, um, or particularly um, qualified to, to watch children for a long period of time, right? So that's one. Uh, policies like the earned income tax credit, there's a lot of research out there that says that refundable earned income tax credits are one of the most effective anti-poverty policies in the United States, right? North Carolina actually got rid of REITC a few years ago. But that policy is something that people don't really see as a child-focused policy because it is a tax policy. But what it does is it gives a refund back to working parents, right? So parents with children have to work. They get some of that money back, which then helps them to pay for the basic needs that are associated with having a child. So things like childcare, things like transportation, things like housing, right? Things like food. And it's a relatively small amount of money. Um, I don't want to misquote it, so I won't say the exact amount, but the average amount for the EITC is pretty small. Um, I wish I could remember it off the top of my head, but we're talking like, you know, a couple hundred dollars. But 
if your family is living in poverty, that couple hundred dollars makes a very big difference, right? And what we've seen is that when we give the EITC to folks who are living in poverty, that they reinvest that into their families and their communities. And so um, counter to a sort of narrative that's out there that people who live in poverty don't know how to, to spend money responsibly and you can't give people you know what they call cash handouts because they'll spend them on TVs and cars and that sort of thing. It's just not true, right? And the EITC has shown us that. And so in this way of giving parents just a little extra help, and it's money that they have earned through their jobs, we are then helping them to reinvest that in their kids' education, helping them to invest that in um, local businesses, helping them to make their communities better. And it's just a few hundred dollars, right? So those sort of policies are two generation. And I look at um, policies across the spectrum. So not just tax policy, not just education policy, um, you know, health policy as well. I already mentioned expanding Medicaid, but um, that could also be seen as a two generation policy in that um, research has shown that when parents are insured, that their children are more likely to be insured as well. And so why wouldn't we want that to be the case, right? Why wouldn't we want parents who are having trouble to afford care to have that so that then we know their kids are more likely to receive care when they need it? Those parents are also more likely to um, to be able to stay at work because they are you know, healthier. Um, also, their children are shown through research to be healthier as well, on average. So I think the two-generation strategies are really sort of the the top tier of public policies, in my mind, two or three generation, if you can, um, getting back to, to even more members of that family or collective unit around a child, because two generation strategies are, are a way for us to look at public policy, not only as something that is impacting today, but as something that's impacting tomorrow, because it's supporting the future of kids, right? And they're supporting the people who support them. Because that is what our future is built on, right? How kids grow up right now is making how our kids are going to grow up in the future. Because those are the kids who are going to be responsible for our economy and our education system mm-hmm. and, um, and taking care of our natural resources and all of that. But where they put their priorities depends in large part on what they were exposed to when they were younger than eight years old. And so we have to be investing in the entire family and not just the child to be able to see the outcomes that we want because kids can't just get us there all on their own. So is that type of research, uh, to, you know, speaking about two-generation strategies, is that emerging as a more frequently researched topic? It is. Um, two-generation strategies, I would say probably over the last five to 10 years have become much more popular, um, at least in the nonprofit field. I would say that in some of the more um, politically liberal states, you see more of those policies being enacted, but the idea is still, you know, being supported pretty much universally as more individuals, as more policymakers are learning about sort of brain science of how kids develop and the impact that adults in their lives have on how kids turn out as, as adults themselves. We're seeing more people trying to, to create programs that can help both. So things like um, home visiting programs where a trained nurse or other professional comes into a family's home when a child is pretty young, usually under three, um, and teaches that parent about positive parenting practices, um, developmental milestones they should be looking for in that child, um, helps connect them with community resources they might need. Um, That helps the parents in pretty obvious ways, but it also helps the child because it teaches that parent how to be a better parent when they might not have had any experience with a parent who supported them and nurtured them in a way that was really backed by best practice and research. But obviously cultural competence comes into that as well. (laughs) Yeah, I, the sustainability of you know producing better outcomes it it's such a hybrid formula, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that a lot of what you have touched on has really magnified the need to 
that prevention work, whether it is looking at suicide prevention work or looking at um, different types of well-being, you know, prevention work, Mm -hmm. that it really has to start with at the community level, you know, and whether we're defining community as, you know, a town or, you know, a broader piece or a community as a family and, you know, community. Um, Mm -hmm. So I I really, I thank you for all of that insight and, and feedback about what is, what is being looked at, what is being mobilized and what we still need to do. So I thank you for that. Um, yes. Well, thank you for having me. I, um, I so, know that there's been a lot that we've kind of covered in this conversation so far, but it's just because suicide prevention is so much broader than just suicidal ideation. You know, it's like mm-hmm. you're saying, it's that community level, whatever you define community as um, sort of prevention strategies. And those are so broad. There's so many things we can do to help prevent despair. So, you know, as we, you know, started out, the theme of this podcast is learning, lifting, leading, social equity for and by black and brown girls and women. And that is aligned with the 33rd Women's Conference that took place at Shaw University back in October. Um, and, you know, I'm putting this question to everyone. What suggestions could you make about how black and brown girls and women can be learning, lifting and leading to bring about hmm. social equity? Hmm. So first, since it was the, the focus of the podcast, um, bringing about social equity as it relates to suicide prevention, I would say first off, um, trust your suspicions. If you are concerned that a family member or a friend or someone else you know might be um, having suicidal ideation, listen to them and express any concern that you have in a really non-judgmental way and then work to get them connected to a professional. So first, that is one thing that we can be doing for each other that can really lift us up, right? Because I don't think that um, there are enough people out there just saying that, like, black girls particularly, like, we got to look out for ourselves, right? We have to look out for each other and that when you see something, you need to say something to your friend. Mm -hmm. So that said, that's one thing. Um, and so another way that we can learn, lift, and so lead to bring about social equity um, first is to to lift others up when you're there, right? So if you are hired in a position that has the power to to change policy, to to hire others, that you need to empower other Black women by making sure that you are putting out your applications in places where black women can see them, right? That you are um, engaging in mentoring programs that can help black and um, brown girls to, to get the sort of opportunities that got you to where you are. I think that as we talk about all of these things that can be done on a policy level to help promote social um, equity, that one of the biggest things you can do is have someone who represents your interests, who, um, believes in you, right, who represents your interests. Uh, I think a lot of the times our our politicians, we have just gotten used to this idea that the people who make laws about us and for us don't actually look like us, and that um, this most recent election has seen across the country that change a little bit. And I want to encourage black and brown girls in particular to not be afraid of that, and that if you have good ideas for your community, to not be afraid to be the one who voices those ideas. So you don't need, you know, a white man or anyone else to to represent what you want to see in your community and in your life, right? That you have that power and that we need to support each other in building the skills and connections that we might need to represent ourselves. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate your participation in this important work, and I feel lucky to have you. (laughs) Well, thank you. Um, I know that was a lot, but if anyone hears this and they do have questions, I want to encourage them to um, to reach out to me by email. My email address is just Whitney at ncchild.org. Amazing. Um, I appreciate you sharing that. And, you know, maybe within the context of access to resources, would you like to share with our listeners a centralized place where they could either call or visit if they are needing support? 
Sure. So um, are we talking access to any resources or particularly suicide prevention? Either whatever you feel is helpful. Sure. So I would say, um, first off, that North Carolina does have um, suicide prevention hotlines in each county, but that there's a national suicide prevention lifeline as well. Um, That number is 1-800-273-8255. And so if you or someone you know is in crisis, that this is a line that can really help you to, um, to get back on solid footing and able to come up with a plan to keep that person around. So that's one thing. But, um, when we're talking about other needs that a family, um, might have, I think it depends on what that need is. But, um, if you're specifically looking for access to uh, social services and that sort of thing, that your local DSS office can actually put you in contact with lots of community groups that um, that are helpful. I think there's also sort of a stigma around um, social services support, um, and that's for a lot of historical reasons, but um, that the majority of people who work in the Department of Social Services or the Division of Social Services are really there to help children and families. And so um, if you feel that there's something that you need that you cannot afford that you cannot access in your area that um calling your local dss would actually be a great first step to get you there and then if you are um looking for resources to help you in a policy or issue focused campaign particularly as it relates to kids i encourage you to reach out to me Um, we are always at nc child happy to support local efforts that are working to create better outcomes for kids so if there's something that's going on in your community that you really want to start working to fix and you just don't know where to start. You need data. um, You need uh, more information about what's been done in other states on that issue. I'm happy to help with that. And if you only need data by itself, we also have the Kids Count Data Center that's put out by um, by NC Child. You can get to that at datacenter.kidscount.org backslash nc. And that page has more than 300 different indicators of child well-being. So it'll show you things like how many kids live in poverty in your county. It'll show you how many kids live in um, single-parent families, how many kids um, don't have access to health care, all kinds of things on that page. Um, And so that's a good first resource if you just want to get a look at what's going on and, like, the scale of any problem you might be seeing. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Learning, Lifting, Leading, Social Equity for and by Black and Brown Girls and Women with our guest, Whitney Tucker, Director of Research at NC Child. Special thanks for this podcast go to Shaw University, Elon University, and the Raleigh Apex Branch of the NAACP for supporting this important work.